0: Oh, good evening everyone. When you're looking so peaceful, it's a little hard to interrupt your your peace. And I know that's not necessarily what's going on inside. <laughs> but on the outside, it looks it looks so nice. <laughs> I was thinking how, you know, how it is that we get to where we are. Um, how do we get to day five? Anyone counting? <laughs> I think it's day five. How do we get here? You know, but also how did we get to this point in time in our life? Just all of these uh, drops, all of these moments that constitute our time, that make up our, our time. And moment by moment, retreat starts, and we arrive, usually the mind and body are spinning, a lot of energy, a lot of weight that we're carrying, or don't necessarily always know exactly how much weight we're, in fact, carrying just how exhausted we really are. And, you know, by hanging out in this kind of environment, what happens is really drop by drop, slowly, all of us together are, at least on average, we could say, we're moving in a direction moving in a direction. And one of my favorite short little lines from the Buddha who said that the great ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt, or just as the great ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt. So too does this Dhamma and training have but one taste the taste of liberation, the taste of freedom. I don't think I knew exactly what I was up for. Um, Before my first retreat, um, I probably would have run away had I known uh, how long the journey is. Because I thought, oh good, one retreat, uh, I'll do a retreat and kind of fix, you know, fix things up a bit. <laughs> and uh, just tidy, tidy the mind and heart, you know. <laughs> you know, sort of, we'll put things in order and then um, it'll be great after that. <laughs> and so it's, it's sort of easy to kind of imagine that we can do more than we can do. And a lot of this understanding sort of takes time that what we are doing in this path, this cultivation is just that, it is a cultivation. And I think Ryan had mentioned that, uh, this phrase that I like to say a lot also, which is that we're always practicing something, which means we're always cultivating something. Oftentimes what we're cultivating, of course, are moments of not knowing, moments of distress, rushing, kind of deepening those habits. And just by being here, right, by sharing this communal field and opening the heart and mind to the suggestions of the the Dhamma, of tuning into reality, what begins to happen really is that our mind stream starts to attune to kind of a different way. It's like we're willing to take off some of the masks that kind of protect us, that shield us, that armor up. You know, and so it's like we all can slowly become like, it's one of my favorite creatures, um, Sorry to use it as a bad example but like a turtle, you know that gets a big shell and is all armored up. Cuz I love turtles, but you know we kind of can, we can kind of create a lot of shell and then even kind of withdraw and hide inside. And it does take some willingness and some courage to begin to open to what the way things are. Not needing to do really that much. We are nature. We are a part of this world. We belong in this universe, just as we are. And yet it's so easy to sort of separate ourselves, to pull ourselves back, as if we don't really belong. That it's not really worthy or worthwhile to truly know you know, our vulnerable state of mind. Sort of, well, that's not really what's significant. And particularly in a society that has become so transactional, that's, you know, the measure of things can be measured. You know, measured by amount. And now it's like we even measure, we measure ourselves by how many friends we have on these social medias. And I'm so glad I don't, tend to use those because it would, I'd be constantly, I don't know, seeing like how many people are liking something. And (laughs) I think I've liked one post in my life. So um, don't do it very often. Um, You know, so it's so easy for our minds to just get caught into that kind of accumulation and easy to miss what really the meaning of life can be about. And I'm just sort of amazed when I started practicing that this universe provides a opportunity, right, a path for our hearts and minds to fully awaken. And it's not like a, a dream. Like when I first heard the, that word, and I think it's sort of, you know, in our cultural lexicon, just the word nib- Nibbana. Or nirvana, nibbana in the Pali. It sounds sort of like this, I don't know, heaven thing that we can't reach it here, or I can't reach it for sure. Or if it is reachable, it's only reachable by some past being that wasn't really human. Um, And yet, when we really start to explore what does liberation really mean? And what does freedom mean? In our normal way of thinking about freedom means I'm free just to do whatever I want. And I'm free in that way. I'm free to just express, and that's a certain kind of freedom. But when we really look at it, what is it that traps our heart and mind, right? that binds us into confusion? into a sense of separation, into division, into a feeling of a lack. This moment isn't good enough. I'm not good enough. This moment just is not good enough. And so then we're constantly running, in a way, in our own personal lives, but then as a society, this just frenetic energy, because we don't have this... Knowledge, in a way, that we can live this life as it is. Meet all the hardships that we're going to face, and actually meet them, and open to them. Feel them, recognize them, turn towards them. That's why I'm always so really touched when I... um, I feel people are practicing sincerely because I feel I have company. You know, I have company on this path and it isn't an easy path. And even if it were easy, our minds would make it really hard. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what our minds and hearts do. In a way, like what it is that we face will be difficult because of our fears, our anxieties, in a way that the qualities of the mind and heart aren't quite able to match the particular challenge. And this is what our training is about. We train, we come here on retreat, we talk with good friends who are also are interested in the nature of reality, of being true, being honest, being vulnerable, And all of those drops add up. They all add up. So, you know, the the sense of the ocean having but one taste. And so when we practice, as it said, a little bit, we do begin to have that taste. It's the taste of salt, that taste of freedom. Even if it's just smaller moments, a few more moments in our day than we otherwise would have had that we are awake, that we knew our mood, we knew our state of mind. We even know that the heart is struggling, is a bit of taste of freedom. That is how the struggle will be known, can be felt, and slowly begin to understand what the process is, what is creating it, what is the mind thinking, what beliefs are there. What ideas am I holding on to? And so the, the Dhamma is often described, and again, from the words of the Buddha, said that the, just as the great ocean slopes and slants and inclines and doesn't drop off steeply, so too does the path of the Dhamma slope and slant and incline towards freedom. And I think it can, it can be feel really easy at times, just that we're not getting anywhere. You know, I'm not sure I'm getting anywhere. It's day five and this is potentially the mind may have had the thought that the retreat is coming to an end soon. Um, and then when we think a retreat is coming to an end soon, then we start to think, what have I gotten out of it? And you might have gotten a lot out, which, which is wonderful. And even if you don't think you've gotten a lot out of it, we know you've gotten a lot out of it. Because it's impossible, in a way. It would be unlawful against the laws of cause and effect to have spent time, moment by moment, not just out towards screens and concepts constantly, but slowly coming in touch with moment-to-moment process of reality. And that is a cause-and-effect process. And so that is why this path is constantly sloping towards a place of freedom, a place of ease. And in a way, we don't have to do a lot. We really don't. But we also can't stop. And I think that's probably the biggest hindrance. Because even though if we have said things that have been helpful in your path, that has been helpful. But ultimately, what has really happened here is that you've been using your mind for a lot of moments during this day in a, in a skillful way. Moments of awareness. Moments of opening the heart. Moments of receiving, remembering some wisdom in the mind. This moment is changing, arising, passing away. Thoughts are not an identity. They're just an arising and passing away. Same with emotions. Right, so moment by moment, this is how our path is unfolding and it's easy to think it's sort of happening in the magic you know, of the container, like there's some sort of magical dust that sort of happens that we pick up here. But it's actually the moment-to-moment use of our heart and mind. And so when I was with Saida Utejaniya, my main teacher in Burma, I would very frequently go to him and ask, what do I do now? What do I do next? Am I doing enough? And so then when I read this quote in one of his uh, books, I, I think he was actually talking about me. <laughs> I did. This is like I said these exact words so many times. So often, this is from meditation Yet, often yogis or meditators come to me and say, "I'm stuck in my practice. What should I do? How should I continue?" All I need say is, "Have right view and be mindful. Let any experience arise." This is just nature happening. Don't take it personally. We need to observe objectively. And from that, we will learn. A learning process will unfold." And so he probably said that to me. And then the next day I would ask him, so what do I, what do I do now? (laughs) So then he would say, all I need say is have right view and be mindful. (laughs) (laughs) And so then I would go in again and he'd say, have right view and be mindful. Right, so our practice can become kind of super complicated at times. Like, what am I I doing? Or the mind's not quite clear, and we can make it very simple again. You know, is the mind present? Are we aware? Is awareness present? And and am I seeing it through some kind of wisdom? Do I know that this moment is being known? Do I know that it's changing? Do I know that it's a process? And so I often like to share um, with groups during the talk at some point, I've sort of dropped a mention of it, but I have had really, and it's not so much anymore, but a, would say off of the bell curve level of um, fear of anxiety, fear of public speaking. Just, I think mine is worse than yours, type of, um, <laughs> who thinks they have worse than I do? Or I did. I see a lot of hands. Nope. Um, so, and I remember it's like, you know, being in the monastery and if you're there long enough, then these, you know, places where people are practicing a lot. You hear all these stories of all these amazing things that you can, you know, you can do through your concentration, and some of them completely fantastical. And um, no idea, I don't think so. But, anyways, you know, I'd hear all these things, and I remember I just kept thinking, I don't care about superpowers. I want to be able to be free of the grip of this particular phobia because it was preventing me from living my life. I couldn't do anything that required any kind of group experience, you know, where I had to say my name. I'd be like, Alexis <laughs> you know? So I just bark it out so no one could tell that like inside I was just in total panic. And so I had this like, I was asking side-a-s my heart was racing and there was like maybe one other person in the room, you know, so I would racing and you know, is it possible that my mind will understand this process? Because I'm being aware right now. My mind's racing. I know what's happening. How come it's not stopping? <coughs> Just be mindful and have right view. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say that, but <laughs> so. And I was curious. Like, is it is it possible? Is it actually possible to be freed from in a way our deepest sankaras, these patterns? that trap us. Is it possible? And I really had this thought, if it is possible that this conditioning here can be understood, can be relieved from the grip, from the suffering of it, I really had this feeling, God, it is possible. Like total freedom will be possible. A few years later, as I was still suffering from it. I remember I was in the car, um, riding with Ajahn Sumedho, a Thai forest teacher, one of the kind of great Thai forest masters, American, opened a lot of monasteries around the world, and lived uh, in England for many years, and I remember he had talked about his fear of public speaking also in one of his, or maybe many of his talks. And when you hear his voice, it sounds like, well, that's not possible. His voice is so calm. And so I was in the car asking him, because I still, even a few years into my practice, and I said, how is it possible? Like, how how do you not get terrified when you're speaking to hundreds of people? Because I knew he would go to these big conferences. And he said, oh, I could make myself scared. I just have to think about it. And I thought, oh, that's I hadn't really seen that part of the process of what the mind was doing, that my mind was constantly thinking about as just one extra little bit of information that my mind needed of understanding, oh, my mind is constantly thinking about what's going to happen. About numbers or people or something, and the mind creating the condition for anxiety to arise. And that wasn't, you know, just the the magic key, but it, it did show me that, oh, this is what moment to moment awareness allows us to do, is that we can pay attention in a way that we can see the process cause and effect, a thought triggering a feeling, those feelings triggering moods, triggering a whole identity, a whole story that we'll never get out of. This is who I'll be absolutely forever, no end. And so we need to see these processes as unfoldings, as processes, and that is really why our practice of awareness, is so radical, why it's so transformative, is because it allows us to be with our own experience as it is, and understand our process, and then understand the process of life around us as well. We really begin to see, what is suffering? What are the deep causes of suffering? How do I contribute it to it in my own heart? How am I contributing to it in the field around me? And when we see the process, we understand it, it's natural that the heart and mind begin to let go of those particular patterns. So I want to just read one passage from... um, Again, the the suttas, this is called an act of will. Okay, so for a person endowed, and this is sort of pointing to the lawful unfolding, it's called an act of will but it's basically saying the path isn't an act of will, meaning we don't just make things happen. It isn't unfolding. Okay, so, for a person endowed with virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue. For a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there is no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be tranquil. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person tranquil in body, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience happiness. It is in the nature of things that a person tranquil in body experiences happiness. For a person experiencing happiness, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It is in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing happiness grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It is in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. there are a couple more steps. (laughs) Are you interested? Okay. They get a little bit more esoteric. Okay, so you can just put your mental seatbelts on. (laughs) Okay. For a person who knows and sees things as they actually are, there is no need for an act of will. May I feel disenchantment it is in the nature of things that a person who knows and sees things as they actually are, feels disenchantment. For a person who feels disenchantment, there is no need for an active will. May I grow dispassionate. It is in the nature of things that a person who feels disenchantment grows dispassionate. For a person, for a dispassionate person, there is no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of release, of letting go. It is in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge and vision of release. I didn't have that frame of mind before my first retreat. As I I was kind of getting ready for my first retreat, I wasn't thinking, oh, here is this kind of progression where I'm going to, you know, head down this path of the possibility of full release. And yet, once we begin and we have these small moments of tasting what the Dhamma is about, what knowing reality is about. That we can know a contracted heart, a heart that's leading right with some kind of resistance, of closing down. We know the result of that. And then we know what happens and we experience it when the mind and heart are more open. That is already kind of pointing to what the whole path is laying before us. And we just keep Meeting our edge. Where is our current edge? And what's here now? Where do I kind of feel unsure about? Can I start to meet that? So rather than avoiding those places, and we're not needing to throw ourselves into you know, deep traumas and things. This is a, really a gradual process that allows us to ride a little bit of an edge and to learn and to be curious moment by moment. In my mind, it doesn't even, in a way, kind of make sense to do something else with my mind and heart other than to be with the reality of experience. It just seems so meaningful for me and for all the beings that I'm going to be kind of connected with is to be uh, as awake to my own patterns, to see how it is that I cause suffering, to learn about that. So I had um, told Narayan before I came in here that I was going to be just saying a couple words and then taking questions tonight. (laughs) So that was mostly my intention. Um, But for the remaining time that we have, I would like to offer some time to just see what questions may be perkling it up, percling up in your own practice, um, things that are really meaningful to you that you'd like to... um, have some time just to, to put into the field. Yes? In the Narayan was talking about any Yeah, we're going to give the, these guys a break so that I'm, I'll field all the questions unless you want to whisper any qu- <laughs> um, But quite so... Yeah, so it, the. <clears throat> to nurture yourself. To nurture yourself. To particular question you ask. Yeah, so are there useful questions to ask yourself that helps to nurture, take care of yourself, or to take care of your practice? We could say that. So both, I believe, George and Orion talked about the factors of awakening, these seven factors that, when they're present, are what lead the mind to be able to see things the way they are. Right, that unbinds the mind from being caught in, in things. The second factor, so the first one is mindfulness. As we're steadily paying attention, moment to moment, we begin to become more curious about what is the process that is actually happening. What is this moment of reality? So when I was talking about asking Ajahn Sumedho about what happens with him, and he said, well, you know, I can... Cons- If I think about it, my mind can trigger. And what's happening there is that is that factor. From mindfulness then comes interest or investigation. Investigation is in the kind of bucket of wisdom, the wisdom factor. So when we're dropping a question into our mind, we're really using our wisdom faculty to be a part of our practice. So one of the books that, again, from my teacher, Utegenia, the title of the book is Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And that may sound a little disheartening. It's like, <laughs> I can hardly be aware, and now it's not enough. <laughs> um, but we're, we're aware enough, honestly. And if we generally know enough, something about your experience, But the reason why it's not enough is we need to be looking at experience in a way that helps to reveal the nature of what is there. So before we start practicing, it doesn't sort of occur to most of us to recognize that whatever we're looking at is a cause-and-effect process, or that it's impermanent, changing, or that it's not a solid permanent identity, a thing that life is composed by constant conditioning. But when we hear that, and then we reflect on it, that wisdom starts to come in. So the idea of bringing in questions into our practice is really useful, and and it really is a big part of our practice. It's going to be very individual. It may be a wisdom kind of question. So, for example, like, do I know that this moment is a new moment? for my mind would help me a lot when I was stuck on something. Do I actually know that this is a new moment passing? Particularly when the mind would get calm, I would totally forget about impermanent. It just would be stuck in calm. But as soon as I remembered, oh, calm is being known, now I'm back to being awake, knowing the present moment. So dropping those kinds of questions in, so that's a little bit more on the wisdom side, on the nurturing side, it may just be like, "Can I be with this? Is this okay to be with?" So around my own constellation of phenomenon around public speaking would be heart racing, getting very red, right in the face, very uncomfortable, shame. So whole all these different elements, and each one, as I would sort of ask, "Is this okay to be with?" Part of my mind would say, "No." Right, but then part of you is like, actually, I can be with it. It's a process. It's just happening. And kind of the sign that I was starting to get somewhere in that particular dynamic and asking that question, I was in I was in Thailand as a monk at the time and staying at a, at a monastery where kind of kids would come and visit. And they knew I was there, so they had asked me in the morning, I was, would, you, would you mind talking to the kids this evening about kind of how you became a monk as a Westerner? It's sort of unusual. Um, so I thought, I with kids, sure, no problem. That's fine, a few kids. <laughs> Anyways, as the evening starts to approach, busloads and busloads of kids start arriving, and it's a major event, and no one told me it was... <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be a, like a stage where I'm there. <laughs> and it's a sea, you know, a sea, really a sea of people. And I thought, so the, for the hours leading up to it, I was like, I mean, I was lying there just doing everything I could, all my like practices, <laughs> trying to, so, anyways, I, I get onto the, to this, the platform and the little bright lights and I'm red just full red. And I see the kids like looking at me <laughs> and sort of pointing a little bit. <laughs> so my worst nightmare, of course. But inwardly, actually, because there was so much momentum, I was beginning to say it's okay. It's just red. It's just feelings. I couldn't believe it. But that was the beginning of some sort of um, freedom that I could start to taste of that. Um, but yeah, the questions can be helpful for for some people whose minds are already super thinking, take some care about the questions. Because one question can lead to more than one question. right? And then it's just the thoughts are... Right? But it's really the, the real question is, dropping the question in, and it lands, does it bring us kind of towards a sense of interest and, and intimacy with what's happening? That's the role that factor of awakening is we're right there. Once it becomes a factor of awakening, mean now we're right there with reality and we're curious about what's happening. So when we're seeing our process and we're interested, you can identify that as being the factor of investigation. Dhamma-vichaya is present. And so we start to recognize these different factors as we gain some momentum. They just start to show up that sometimes the heart feels light And joyful, when there's joy, or tranquil, there's tranquility. Or the mind isn't just darting around. Or if it is, there's a sense of being able to see the mind darting around. Oh, there's stability, and then equanimity. Oh, there's the mind that's gaining some some balance in the midst of everything that's going on. And those factors kind of reinforce each other. Anyway, so yes, the the questions are very useful and and identify them a little bit as using that factor of, of wisdom that is very important in our practice. What to Say that again. Are there things that are both pleasant or... or I, know, I know, like when things come up, and I'm right. like, well, they're kind of both. Right. And, and so I'm a little, I was just wondering how, how to work with that. Some things are like, oh, the, you know, the lovely breeze, yes, it's very pleasant, okay. I mean, you know, that's very apparent. Right, right. You know, but then I'm like, you know, more, you know, internal, whatever, my imagination. Right, it has both... Has, has both. Just know that. <laughs> just be aware, and have right view. <laughs> um, I mean, in a way. So, just re- remembering that the point—the <laughs> point of of knowing what something is—is is really just to learn about how experiences, how how this. This experience of being ourselves is like, what is it like? And so it's not to get in there and get fascinated with a minutia of stuff. And if we are, we can see the mind doing that. Oh, this is fascination. It's kind of getting caught on something. And fascination can come with a sense of binding that is not as free as a mind that is interest, but not now trying to resolve and, and get something out of it. And so the question that then, for me, I would just ask is, is there any suffering around this particular process? Because remember, the whole taste of the Dhamma is to be free. It's not to understand <clears throat> the metaphysics of, and, and have big philosophies. Our life is very quick. And that's why this analogy of the, that the Buddha gave about, I think I was sharing with one group about you know being shot with an arrow... And a lot of philosophies, then, that we have in our mind, is we start asking questions. Which direction did the arrow come from? What is the wood made out of? And what kind of bird do they use for the feathers of the arrow? And then slowly, it's like you're dying. So the Buddha is saying, we don't need to do that. The essence of our practice and the whole reason, in a way, is to be freed from suffering. And, you know, and, and everything that that implies. So sometimes when the mind's not sure about something, you can also just kind of ask that question, is there suffering here? Because that'll guide you into what's relevant about figuring out this particular, it's, it seems pleasant and unpleasant. Oh, I seem to be a little bit confused. And now I'm identified with the confusion. Oh, this is confusion. You know, so whatever, whatever it is that is coming, Right, that we want to actually be able to step back and understand it as, as a process. Okay. We'll pause here. One more question. Jill. Yeah, Jill. Uh, I think this, the answer that you just gave maybe related to this question. Okay. Yes. And then, right. Then I realize I've like been a thought train. Right. A big time. right. <laughs> so uh, maybe even just for the audio. So question around um, how to know when our investigation or questioning is wise questioning or investigation, was that the word used? And when is it when does it turn into just more now we're just writing the thought train and it's actually not supporting our practice? Um In a way, the feedback from what's happening will always guide us if something is skillful or unskillful, if something is wholesome or unwholesome. Wise thought, because just in terms of its definition, when it's wise, meaning it's a view that helps us to see reality, tends to bring a sense of ease and peace into our system. It's wise and skillful, meaning it's right. That in the categories, skillful thought, wise thought, right thought, is it's wise because it leads us away from some sort of being caught to freedom. So, if you're able to sense in your own mind and know, your, and we, we start to know our minds really just as easily as we know our body. It takes some time, but as we start to open the awareness, we can see our states of mind. Then we can see. Is this, is this questioning now, questioning and doubting? Is it questioning with desire and greed? Or is it a question that lands in the heart and then now actually helps me to recognize what's here? Oh, I've been struggling against something. Oh, I've been trying to figure out there's the greed again coming in. Right? Oh, this is greed. So if you're able to just listen, because this really will be the proof, of the whole path in a way is what is the result a cause and effect right so if you can just sense for yourself what is happening that that will that'll guide you right and so just kind of just listening listening to see what happens and then and then if you see yourself lost for a long time the question was probably a little bit of a you know an extra thought yeah so okay great So, let's just go ahead and settle again into the silence of being together. And so just reconnecting with the simplicity of our practice. You don't need to do a lot. It's a natural unfolding. And in your own way, just appreciating this possibility of taking care of yourself, growing in factors of heart and mind that really make a difference in this world.